Hello and welcome to Spy Hard Declassified. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're here to bring you our latest intel straight from our mysterious spy network. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. Cam, it's finally happened. We've seen no time to die. Oh, I thought we were here to do Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. I've got you've seen that film. I haven't yet. I'm, I'm not sure I want to go, but uh, the reviews are hilarious. But no, we need to talk about this film. It's been eluding us for years. I'm not using my Venom notes. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Fair enough. No, Tom Hardy talking to himself. Mm-hmm. Not mm. until he uh, becomes the next Bond, right? Well, <laughs> well, I, I don't get that argument. Sorry, if you're a Tom Hardy stand, please uh, stop. Not going to happen. He's he's aged out. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the film that has been eluding us thanks to pandemic delays, No Time to Die, the final Daniel Craig film, we're here to talk about it. Now, as this is declassified, this is our off-the-cuff quick thoughts from seeing the film. It's not a full episode. We're not going to talk about the knock list here. It's really just our raw thoughts about the film. And because this film is having a gradual delayed release, we're actually going to do this episode in two stages. So we're going to start off with a no-spoiler section. So there'll be no spoilers. It'll just be our thoughts about the film. And then we'll go into a spoiler section later in the episode, which will let you know way ahead of time. And we'll also leave time indexes in the show notes. So you can skip right to that if you want to. But Cam, I saw this a week ago because I'm in the UK. You saw it yesterday. No time to die. How are you feeling? I I want to know about you first because you have seen it, I believe, twice now, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And you have had this bottled up for like a week while I sat here like an idiot being like, oh, I haven't seen it yet. So you were just exploding. You couldn't wait, you know, to talk about it. Let it all out. What did you think? I want to know. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I think this was probably the best final Bond film they've ever made Mm -hmm. in terms of completing the arc of a Bond. If you look at Diamonds Are Forever, if you look at A View to a Kill... Die another day. Awful compared to this. That being said, it's probably not my favorite Bond film. There's some choices they've made in the film I'm not so much a fan of. Um, some bigger ones and some smaller ones. But you know, overall, I think I think it's a good good film. I I liked the completion of the arcs that they set up in Spectre. You know, they actually paid things off, which is a, a rare occurrence, even for a Daniel Craig film. That they will sometimes drop things. Um, and you know, I, I walked out of the cinema mostly happy. I, I had some gripes and, and that was about it really, but it, it didn't blow my socks off, I suppose. Did your opinion change at all from first viewing to second? I was actually probably further down on the film when I saw it a second time. I think seeing it the first time in IMAX at the BFI in London, the biggest IMAX screen in Europe really added to the majesty on her majesty's. <laughs> of seeing it all and the emotional catharsis of finally seeing No Time to Die was quite an emotional experience. You know, there was a scene in the film that actually got an emotional experience out of me, which I don't think I've ever done with a Bond film before, except maybe on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, I definitely wept at the end of Die Another Day. Is that because it was over? <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> I made it through. <laughs> I will die another day. I could learn to like it. <laughs> if I had the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, the second time I, I found I was sort of sitting there and critiquing things more. 
mm-hmm. um, which is maybe a good or a bad thing. But I'm glad the first time I saw it, I came out feeling mostly positive. And I spoke to some of our listeners, John, David, you know, pleasure to meet you both there at the showing. But, you know, that was a good experience and a communal Bond experience. Everyone there at 8 a.m. was was there to see Bond and they mm-hmm. wanted to. Whereas the second time I saw it, I went with my partner, Hannah. It was more of a general movie going audience, I think. And I was sitting there kind of almost like with my notepad out and being like, oh, I didn't like that. Oh, I didn't like that. So, but anyway, all together, I think I enjoyed the film more than a handful of the Craig films. I think it's the best final Bond film they put out. I had some problems with it, but I enjoyed it. I think it's um, it was a pretty good Bond film. But I can't, I need to know. I've been waiting for a week to hear what you think about it because you're the bigger Bond fan out of the two of us, I would say. You're the guy that was watching it, you know, since birth. Tell me, tell me. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'll make a couple of notes before I really give my opinion, just to drag this out just a, a couple minutes oh my extra. God. For I think they do sort of inform everything I'm going to say, though. Mm-hmm. Number one, whenever I go to see a new Bond film, I find myself struggling internally through the first viewing, trying to align this with my long, you know, um, adoration for the franchise. It's always this feeling of like, oh, this did something strange. How do I feel about this? I often find it a very almost stressful um, intellectual exercise the first time through. And I was talking to my sister after the movie last night. I went with her as well as Tyler, who guested on our Three Days of the Condor episode. And um, I was saying to her, I don't think I have walked out of a Bond movie in theaters um, confident in my comprehension as to where it fits within Bond canon in my head since Tomorrow Never Dies. I remember walking out of Goldeneye struggling like, oh, I don't I don't know about Brosnan. Like, I don't know how I feel about him in comparison to the Bonds I've seen before. Tomorrow Never Dies, I was 100% on board. And I wonder if that's actually makes, I wonder if that actually makes a lot of sense because it's one of the most kind of hit the beats of the Bond formula of the last 20 something years. Um, But I remember World is Not Enough, Die Another Day, all the Craigs walking out and being like, huh, okay, I'm going to need to really think about this one and rewatch it. So to follow up on that point, I'll also say my first opinion is a real flexible, like, it's going to change a lot. And that I would honestly say to people who are concerned about reviews for any Bond film, don't stress too much about opening week Bond reviews. Because as we see recently, people are having reappraisals of Quantum of Solace and finding a lot of things they really like about that movie. Bond movies change. Honor Majesty's Secret Service is now one of the most beloved Bond films of all time. That was not the case back in the day. So I'm looking forward to revisiting No Time to Die, and I'm sure my opinion will be more fleshed out later down the road, but I really enjoyed this movie. I sort of sit where you are, where it doesn't, to me, tops uh, Casino Royale. Um, And I think I would also place it under Skyfall. Um, But I do think it's a very confident movie. It has incredibly well-directed sequences, and it had a lot of baggage. It has to pick up a lot of threads of Spectre, and I actually like Spectre more than a lot of other people. It's one that just all of the um, the lead-up to No Time to Die, you just see comments everywhere of people being like, oh, God, how could it ever resolve the horrible Spectre? I liked a lot of Spectre. There's things I don't like. I don't care for the Blofeld stepbrother stuff, but, you know, I, I have a lot I enjoy in that movie. But 
this one had to go in and just deliver on a lot of buildup that people didn't connect with. And I think it did it to the best of its ability. I think in terms of continuing on these stories of Madeline Swan and Blofeld, it actually had me invested in what was going on and pulled me into an all new story. Um, I think there's some big picture themes I want to tackle as we just continue the conversation. But I thought in terms of thematically, this was a more interesting Bond movie than many others. I appreciate that, it, as you said, it takes some wild swings. I don't know how much of that has to do with just the fact Daniel Craig is a producer on this film and he wasn't particularly overjoyed um, coming off of Spectre about coming back and just that they really had to promise him a movie that was going to not only pay off everything he's done leading up to this, but also take him to places he's never really gotten to explore as Bond. That's something that not many Bond actors have had the ability to do, to have a pretty significant amount of creative control. And so I think you see that throughout this movie. And it is a big movie. We all know it's long. That has been well trumpeted that it's almost three hours. You know, it's over two and a half, the longest Bond film ever. But it is a big, dense movie that when I walked out, my brain was like jelly. It was like, okay. It was not bombastic, like sitting through a three-hour uh, Transformers film or something like that. It's just a lot of story, a lot of details, and a lot of payoffs that it's definitely going to require a lot of viewings going forward. <laughs> well, I'll pick up on something you just said just to ask you a little bit more about it, and that is its runtime, which is one of the notes I had, because basically how I want to do this non-spoiler section is just pick out some likes and dislikes that we had, not mm -hmm. too specifically about you know plots and things like that, but you know characters, moments, without touching on them too deeply. But you know, one of the things I actually liked is despite it having a long runtime the longest runtime in bond history you didn't feel it no it was paced incredibly well and you know i think of like christopher nolan doing the dark knight and that's a movie that's like two and a half hours and it flies by i think this one is incredibly well paced and you know there's been shorter bond movies that felt slower looking at you quantum of solace <laughs> i don't know that one barrels through pretty quickly <laughs> mm. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page about the runtime. Maybe I'll just list a couple of things I liked. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can say agree or disagree, really, when we talk about those. The first thing I have to throw out is its side characters. Mm -hmm. So we're talking Anna Diarmas, We're talking Lashana Lynch. We won't get into the specifics of what they do in the film, necessarily. Um, but they both worked for me. I was a, a big fan, especially of Anna Diarmas as Paloma. Her turn in the film, it gave it some of its best moments for me. Agreed. Uh, I think she was a fantastic actor. I think the, the action scenes that she contributes to are some of the best in the film. I agree. Um, everything involving her and Bond was like the highlight of the movie for me. Like I really thought that stuff was really strong. And it really, to me, shows... I don't know how conscious they are of the failings of Spectre, there's that um, Being Bond special where they talk about recognizing the issues they had with Quantum, but they don't really comment on Spectre at all. But to me, I just look back at when they cast Monica Bellucci in that film. And um, there was a lot of excitement because Monica Bellucci was an actress who I think a lot of people felt would be really appropriate for the Bond world. And when she was cast, people were like, hallelujah, it's happening and then blah, like, what do you get out of that performance, right? Like, there's nothing there. And, you know, Ana Darmus, you know, she's not credited near the top of the list, but it, she's a supporting character. 
And I think there's always that concern that they're just going to kind of pop them in there. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a recognizable actor like they did with Monica Bellucci. And they've done many, many, many times in the history of Bond where they take supporting characters and they become iconic purely because they're in a Bond movie. But what really did they do? And your movie will always be better if your supporting characters all pop. If they don't, your movie may not be bad, but it will be brought down a little bit at least. And that's one thing I thought the supporting cast in this movie, great attention was paid to making sure every character really worked and the audience would walk out remembering exactly who they were. Um, Kind of jumping off what you said, like supporting cast, not just a Bond allies, but like henchmen. Um, Think of the Craig era henchmen that the villains have. They are almost all entirely forgettable. Um, you know, Hinks, you know, played by Bautista, is pretty fun. He has a really great fight scene, but his gimmick is really underutilized with like the blade thumbs, and you just don't get a lot there. And like, there's a character in this movie played by Dali Bensala, who I'm not going to give away his gimmick for the people that haven't seen the movie, but he's kind of a classic Bond henchman, and they make him not a particularly conversational character. But he's very distinctive, he's very memorable, and they have fun with him. So again, it's the types of little moments and the little characters that if you just boost them so they all have energy, the audience walks out way happier. I don't know. I, I don't think I'll ever quite forget Elvis's hair from Quantum of Solace. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like you got Elvis, you've got, um, I don't know, like Lashifra had some side goons, but none of them are particularly memorable um silva it's like i guess his main one is the dude that bond fights in the building in front of the big neon sign i guess that's probably number two in that movie is mr white the number two in casino royale i not really he's not a henchman he's more of a mastermind uh, type Mm. um he's a he's a very distinct character so i would definitely say in terms of second tier bond villains through the craig era he's pretty great but by and large, it's been a pretty forgettable bunch, especially when measured against the bonds of the past. Like whether you're Moore, Dalton, Connery, they all had very distinct henchmen. What about you? Uh, a like that you have? Yeah. Well, while we're talking about the cast, one thing that I find very frustrating on revisiting Spectre over the years is, look, they cast an amazing ensemble as the MI6 crew. You know, like Naomi Harris, Ray Fiennes, you know, Rory Kinnear. You have great actors there, Ben Wishaw. And because they had hired really top-tier talent, they were like, crap, we have to give them something to do. It wasn't like the old days where they cast, um, you know, um, working actors, gave them a couple days on set, you know, Lois Maxwell, Desmond Llewellyn, who are very iconic, but they never had a lot to do. They would just get a couple days shooting. And that was, you know, if if... I guess satiated Bond fans just seeing them there, just giving them that brief appearance. But when you cast all stars like this, you got to give them something to do. And Spectre, to me, that one gets a little frustrating where I'm watching this whole side plot of the Scooby Doo gang having to solve the mystery of who is C, uh, you know, who's working at MI6. Like it's just not that interesting to revisit. Um, I what I liked about this movie was it tied everything to do with them organically into the Bond story. So it felt like an ensemble Bond film where Bond was never overshadowed. I thought that was hugely effective in terms of employing that cast. It it certainly could have been the albatross around the film's neck, the, the weight that drags it down, the baggage and 
you know, because you, I mean, go back to what I said, this being the best final Bond film, you know, Diamonds of Forever didn't have any weight, literally. It had no weight. Also, what is the final Connery Bond? Is it that or Never Say Never Again? I don't even know. Or, or is it You Only Live Twice? You Only Live Twice? Oh, because, of, yeah, before of uh, before Honor Majesties, yeah. Like, the Connery era is kind of messy, mm-hmm. so I never really know what to make of it. Yeah. Take it to die another day, then. If it, There's no baggage from the previous films. No. And yet, it fails. Yeah. So this film managed to juggle all of those, uh, you know, those balls in the air, um, which we won't talk about now we'll talk about in the spoiler section but it it sticks that landing certainly and it doesn't drop any of the balls either it gives them all nice little homes and and it pays everything off and and i think ties everything up relatively well i mean finales in history are hard to do tv you know you talk about like film sagas um look at the hobbit films the last one is absolute trash (laughs) the other two weren't great either but the last one is absolutely terrible it's really hard to stick that landing and satisfy everyone. And I think on that side of things, this film does that. Yeah, and it does it in a way where it doesn't feel messy because a lot of these can feel really sloppy. The one thing was, I'll say, uh, I'm not going to give any details regarding the villain other than to say I thought he worked for the movie, but he was a little underwhelming in comparison to what's come before. But on the flip side, I would say Blofeld... Um, I walked out of Spectre being like, okay, I, I love Christoph Waltz. I mean, he's an amazing mm-hmm. actor when he's really honed in on his material. And it felt like they were underserving him. Here, I felt like they actually delivered a Blofeld who hit the heights I always hoped with for that character. When you look at the history of Blofeld, and I mean pre-Waltz, Blofeld's always kind of a disappointment. They build him up a lot, and you kind of don't get a lot of payoff to him. You know what I mean? I don't know. Donald Pleasant's trying to kill a cat is uh, always fun. <laughs> but they build him up there, and then he just kind of sneaks away on like a go-kart or whatever. And you're like, okay, well, fair enough. Sure. Shows up in Honor Majesties, kills Teresa Bond, and then we get Diamonds Are Forever, where he's like cloning himself and being really goofy. It's like you never get full satisfaction regarding Blofeld, and I think this movie corrects that, finally. I will also say that, that Charles Gray in full drag gives me full satisfaction too. Well, me too as well. Yeah. That's why it's yeah. my number one Bond film. <laughs> I'm glad we haven't got there yet. <laughs> but, um, well, I suppose I want to pivot onto some of the things I disliked mm-hmm. uh, that I briefly touched on earlier. And it actually is kind of what you just mentioned. And that is the main antagonist. Uh, I mean, we can say his name, Safin. This is not uh, a hidden thing. Um, I I feel like he works for the film, like you said, but I don't think he's going down in the history of the best Bond villains. I think is a uh, I don't think I've ever felt any menace from him in the film particularly. Well, and a big part of that is, despite this being a two hour forty three minute movie, he features into it very little. Like he's a character who disappears for like forty five minutes at a time almost, um, and you can only make so much of an impact when you're doing that. And, you know, this has been very clearly the end of the Daniel Craig Bond era. And you want to go out on a villain who I think is kind of that exclamation mark at the very end of the era. And I don't know that he's an exclamation mark. He's more of a period. Like, you're like, okay, he delivers what I would hope from a Bond villain, but he ain't Silva. He ain't Le Chiffre. He's not someone who I walked out of the movie with a really strong sense of them as a Bond antagonist for the ages. 
Yeah, I, I I suppose serviceable for the film is is where we would just leave our hat on that one. Mm-hmm. He he works, but I wouldn't seek out to watch more Sapin. I wouldn't be calling for a, a Sapin prequel. No, no, not at all. Um, what about you? Something you disliked? It's not something. I I think that for me, one of the issues is this movie really doubles down on the Madeline and Bond relationship, and. Coming off of Spectre, like uh, those two didn't have a lot of chemistry, at least as far as I felt it in Spectre. And here, I think it's an improvement. I think the Madeline character has been. I don't. I know Phoebe Waller-Bridge was brought in to um, help write this film. I don't know if they had her work on some of the relationships and female characters, but if she did, I think they did wonders with Madeline, where it was a character I genuinely gave something for by the end of the movie. But the relationship with her and Bond is something I have struggled with when I look at whether it's Bond and Vesper or Bond and Teresa in the past. The Madeline Bond one never had that sort of crackle to it where I was invested as I wanted to be. That could change in the future when I revisit the movie. But on a first time going through it last night, it still left me a little like, "Mm, it's fine, but it doesn't connect the way I feel like it should. I don't think I agree with that. I I found I, I agree in the Spectre point. I think they did not work together in, in Spectre. I don't know whether it was Leia Sadu or there was no chemistry between the two of them. I know Daniel Craig had a bad time filming Spectre, obviously he had a broken leg, I believe, or ankle, something like that. Um so probably quite a grumpy guy to be around. <laughs> and I think I think she upped her game and I think he upped his game in this film. And I think it provided was some real drama between the two of them. And I felt I mean, we, this is some of the stuff we'll get into later in, in the in the review, but I felt the increase in both of their games to try and get this love story over. Uh, I, I bought it in this film. I, I never had a problem with it. Yeah, like I definitely agree. They boosted it and worked on it a lot. Like it was very clear they wanted the movie to really hinge on just the relationships they built up over the past movie. And that was a problem coming off of Spectre. They really had to work for it. And I do think it was a massive increase in quality in terms of their material together. But I just, again, it's just more of a connection thing. I just, I don't quite buy into it, but I say that now. Don't know how I'll feel after a couple more viewings. Well, I've had two, so maybe you'll come around on your second one. Mm -hmm. Um, The last major dislike I had with this film, maybe it's not even major. It actually might be slightly minor. But it's the film's reliance on the past. And I don't mean tying up the the Craig story. I, I think it needed to do that. I have no problem with how it did that or how it delivered. I think it did it really well. But there's some things in this film that harken back to previous Bond films. And I think it maybe overplays its hand. Hmm. Um, I can't really get into it much further without spoiling stuff. So I'm sorry. I, I'm being quite vague. But... You know, this is. I, I understand this is the 60th anniversary next year. You think of uh, Die Another Day. They had that room with all the references and things like that. That there is a room like that in this film, actually, if you if you pay close attention to it. Mm-hmm. But there's other things this film does. You know, from from the soundtrack to dialogue choices to moment choices. I just feel like. They over. It's not like they do it once, but they do it several times with the same reference. And it's like, hey, remember this. And it's a whole member berries thing. And I, I, I got it. I got the nostalgia the first time you said it. Not the, I didn't need to hear it again. Yeah, like I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, it didn't phase me too much. I 
liked how this one walked a line between the classic and the new. Mm-hmm. Like it feels very much like a Daniel Craig Bond film while also echoing the classic Bond elements that people really know that fans love. Um, but the reason I feel like it gets away with it maybe more than I might hold it against a different movie was because the Craig era is such a closed continuity. Mm. It doesn't feel like anything to do with the other Bond films that I'm okay with them echoing a past movie. Like, I think I would find it weirder if, um, you know, Pierce Brosnan's third movie suddenly was like riddled with like theme music and what have you from Diamonds Are Forever. I would find that more jarring. I know the Daniel Craig films make uh, made a choice mm-hmm. to almost be their own continuity. Obviously, they kept Judy Dench. That's fine. But they really wanted to pioneer and, and go their own way. But by the time we get to this film, this isn't a spoiler. There's, it's in the trailers. But there's, you know, paintings of previous M's. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I feel like you, can you have your cake and eat it? And I, I, that, it, I just bumped on it, I suppose. That's all. It didn't ruin the film for me. I'm not saying, you know, minus five stars, but it just, it was something I was like, ah, what way do you want to go? That was a choice that was a little strange because they have the paintings of the former M's in, um, in World is Not Enough, mm-hmm. but it makes more sense because that's all an ongoing continuity. Um, here, it's a little strange where it is very closed off. Uh, I don't understand when those M's took place. I don't understand the timeline of the Craig era in relation to other Bond films, especially when you have Blofeld in this film. So whatever. I- I'll take it as just a little tribute, but it doesn't make sense in my head at all. <laughs> but yeah, maybe I'm nitpicking. Um, That's what Bond fans do. <laughs> hey, yeah, and this is, just a, this is just a declassified episode. Wait till we review it properly. Yeah. Okay, well, before we throw to the spoiler section, Cam, do you have any final likes, dislikes, anything you want to throw in? Um, I'll just say, like, big picture, I think this is going to be a really interesting movie long-term to talk about. I think fans are going to be divided on it. I think there's going to be people that are really angry at it, or, you know, there's a lot of traditionalists who have had issues with some of the Craig era. I've definitely bumped up against a number of things that Craig era has done, even outside of Spectre. I remember walking out of Skyfall with some hesitations about it at the time. Um, and, uh, this one is no different. But I think when we look at Bond films, this one is a little richer. The way people are looking at Quantum now in terms of what Mark Forrester was doing with, say, the four elements in the movie, people are going to be looking back at this one and some of the themes it's tackling and be like, huh, like this was a much richer text than Bond had ever aspired to. And we'll see if that continues in the future when they, you know, recast Bond and do whatever they're going to do in the next handful. I have a hard time imagining them them doing the same thing as here. I think once you've kind of done a character arc like this, um, like, I don't know how you do that again. Like, I'm wondering if we do revert back to something more episodic. But within this series, um, this one was pretty interesting. I think it's more interesting than a number of the others in the, in this, you know, Craig five film series. I think the one thing I've learned from having to wait a week to talk to you about this, but weighed out there among the fans that have watched it and and had an opportunity to discuss it with several, Mm -hmm. um, the word that springs to mind is polarizing. Yeah. Uh, There's decisions made in this film that will anger some purists and maybe not purists, maybe just general cinema goers. They won't understand the choices. Um, I fall down on the I'm a fan of most of the choices, I think. And I'm a fan of the film. I think it was it had more good than bad. And so 
I enjoyed my viewing of it. I'm glad I finally got to see it. It was worth the wait for me. Yeah, I felt the same way. Right, so in that case, we're going to throw it over to the spoiler section. So we're going to give you a five-second countdown and then come back in. There's just no time to die. Okay, spoiler section. You have been warned. This is your last chance to turn off the podcast and watch No Time to Die because we're going to spoil everything. Away we go. Cam, I don't think we can continue without you know, talking about it. Let's not bury the lead. Yeah. Bond's dead. Yeah, I thought this was an... This this choice didn't surprise me at all. Because, you know, we open, you acknowledged it in the, um, you know, in the uh, non-spoiler section that this movie pays a lot of homage to past Bonds, specifically Honor Majesty's Secret Service, where we have music from the film. We have early on Bond saying we have all the time in the world. Uh... That was actually supposed to be used actually in uh, the original script. I believe Spectre was supposed to end with him saying that. So I thought it was interesting they carried it over here. Uh, So to me, in that moment, as soon as he said it, I go, okay, he's dying. Because they are not going to kill another Bond leading lady. Like, they're not going to do that Mm -hmm. to make Bond feel something. Like, you can't frigid another character. I think they did Vesper and Teresa really well in those films. You can't do it with Madeline. It just gets repetitive. So I knew in that moment, like, that was it for Bond. I, I can't pretend to be this magical wizard who can predict things. I, I had a feeling that this would be the end of him as as more like a culmination of the arc, mm-hmm. finishing off Bond. And, and I, I don't know how they would have done Bond riding off into the sunset with Daniel Craig, because there would have always been the question of what if. Whereas I think he wanted that finality of death. So when I heard that line, I didn't think... It didn't trigger me to think any more about it. So it's interesting that you hearing that line, it made you think he's dead. Yeah. And plus music cues throughout. I'm like, okay, we're building to something and that's what they're going to do. I honestly do wonder, and I hinted at this in the non-spoilers, that um, he's a producer on this. And one of the things to get Harrison Ford back for Force Awakens was finally he was able to kill Han Solo. Like he really wanted to do that. And if you're a Bond actor and you're hesitant about doing another Bond movie, and you'd say, I'll, I'll come back if I can kill Bond, and they say, okay, that's got to be, for as an actor, really exciting because no one's ever done that, and it's unlikely they'll do it again anytime soon. It's the classic Leonard Nimoy Spock in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. I'll come back if you kill me. Yeah, and he gets to play a moment that no Bond actor has ever gotten to do before. So that's, I mean, I could totally understand just as an actor, not saying I'm an actor, but I can understand how he as an actor would be hugely excited about that. Let's just hope in the next Bond film, he doesn't turn up as a force ghost. (laughs) It's really interesting to me that this five film series, which began as a, um, I mean, it's pretty closely linked influence wise to Batman Begins. Mm Mm-hmm. And Skyfall is very closely linked to The Dark Knight. So much so that Sam Mendes was talking about on the press rounds how much he loved The Dark Knight. And uh, that movie maps over Dark Knight pretty closely. And to me, this felt in a lot of ways like The Dark Knight Rises. It was quite long. Um, You have a hero that's retired. You have the death of that character. You have, um, in this film, M., in that film, Commissioner Gordon um, reading out passages from a book over a memorial to the character. Um, you have a villain who appears in that film. And, and 
kind of is unsatisfying in some ways. Like it feels like they kind of fall second nature. Also, huge focus on the ensemble and the elements that have come before. Whereas you're bringing Ra's al Ghul back in Dark Knight Rises. Here you're bringing back, you know, all the Blofeld, Madeline Swan stuff, ties to Vesper. It really did feel like whatever the Bond movies are going forward, they won't be modeled on the Christopher Nolan playbook the way that this section was, like the, these five films. That's what makes these very distinct to me now. I mean, I've got my theories on what they're going to do next, but I don't want to dive into that today. I think that could be a whole yeah. hour discussion of what we want from it. But I, I think to just, you know, how do you feel about them killing Bond? Are you, are you, because there's a lot of people out there. I've heard them. They did not like it. Hmm. They, I mean, you could say that they're Fleming purists, but at this point, what is a Fleming purist? It's 60 years removed. Yeah. But killing Bond, to me, isn't a big deal. I, I think the I think the film should live in their own continuity from each Bond to another. I, I was never a big fan of the changing the actor and then recycling stories, but pretending that it's all in the same lineage mm-hmm. deal that we had for the first 20 films. Personally, I like this kill him, start fresh. Yeah, you've got Robert Pattinson playing the Batman now. And you've also had Ben Affleck since playing Batman. And we're all fine with it. You know, I'm happy with him dying. I haven't got a problem with it. What about you? No problem whatsoever. I think thematically it makes so much sense in this movie. A lot of this movie is about time and the passing of a generation. And you have not only Bond, Felix dies in this film. You have Blofeld dying in the film. Essentially, we are paving the way for the future. And that, you know, there was, I believe, a line that Judy Dench said, possibly. My mind's a little fuzzy on this. But there was a line about double O's. No, Bond said it. Double O's don't have a a long life expectancy. And we see that this lifestyle, you're not walking off into the sunset. And this is a very um, linear story for the Daniel Craig Bond. It's not restarting every movie like it did with the past Bonds. Where we saw Bond in 2006 versus now is a very different place. And that character is not going to settle into retirement happily. Things are always going to be trailing him. We find out in this movie that he has a child um, with Madeline. And you see a lot of other themes in this movie about children born of violence. Both the villain and Madeline were raised in environments of violence and it did mark their lives forever. And I think Bond being alive would actually potentially damage this child's life. So I think thematically this movie is really fascinating. It's doing interesting things. And I think the death is entirely supported by those choices. Yeah, I I have no issue with it. I mean, one thing people have said about the death is just how contrived it is of how they set it up. But that's just how you write films. Okay, they, they created the virus to infect Bond with the virus so he couldn't get back to his kid and, and you know, Elias Adu. But that's fine. That's how you write films. You you, you write for your ending. Mm-hmm. The payoff is there. And you know, having him blown up in this fiery ball, that's that's fine. I have no problem with him dying that way. I wouldn't want him to go out like in a gunshot. Yeah. I want him to go off in an explosion. There was no way for him to come back without killing his family. He had to die at that moment, and he did. And, it, and I think it it worked in the film, and it worked as a as a closing point for his arc. I'm, I was happy with it all. And I mean, Kerry uh, Joji Fukunaga is an incredible filmmaker. Like he's just, he made an incredibly visually beautiful movie here. And Bond's death is really cinematic. It's a beautiful moment. Um, 
I can't complain. If you're going to kill a character, this is how you do it. It doesn't feel unearned. Um, it really delivers. And yes, it has a finality that is, um, you know, I, I said the Dark Knight Rises. I compared it. You know, obviously Batman escaped that situation. Batman died. Bruce Wayne lived. Here we don't get that sort of, <laughs> you know, Bond doesn't get to escape at the end here. Although I was convinced that he might. I was still hanging on that. I thought he might. <laughs> but I, I'm more than happy to have that finality, that stamp on it, and just say, that's the Craig era. Take it or leave it. And I know as we move into, uh, you know, the next Bond and whatever, that as soon as we cast the next Bond and that series starts rolling, people start throwing pebbles at the Daniel Craig films. It's destined to happen the way that people started picking on the Brosnan movies as soon as the Craig movies launched. That's just part of the, you know, that's the whole picture of Bond fandom just in general. But yeah, I just, I... I would prefer if a Bond movie is going to go kind of crazy. And this one's crazy. Mm. It's really weird. Like this movie's really weird. Um, that it commits to some big ideas that we're going to talk about in many years to come. I I just have, I mean, you had your cinematic uh, comparison with the Dark Knight and, and, and the, the Dark Knight saga, I suppose it's called. Mm-hmm. The one I wrote down when I did my second viewing, I've noted since I've had these notes written for a week to talk to you about this, was Logan. Yeah. You know, you got the old man again. He's retired. He's the superhero, and he goes down in a blaze of glory, defending his child. Um, and I think a lot of people agree Logan is a fairly perfect film. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best in terms of superhero films. And I think that's kind of what Bond films have become at this point: is superhero films. And you couldn't ask for a better exit. No, the one thing I have an issue, and this is something that I brought up, was the villain. Um, Safin in this film, is it Safin or Safin? I keep getting uh, it mixed up. It's a very uh, difficult to pronounce name, the full name. <laughs> I think if you pronounce it properly, it's like Lucifer Safin, but like it's, okay. it's, it's Safin. We'll just okay. call him Safin. Sure, sure. Um, very almost biblical sounding name. It's uh, pretty funny, actually. But this character, I think in a different movie, I wouldn't necessarily be bothered by him because I'd be like, well, you know, he's, he ain't Goldfinger, but he's fine. I struggle with the idea of this is the villain that killed Bond. It's this guy, (laughs) you know? It's like, I appreciate that they don't play him as cartoonish. He's actually an incredibly loathsome villain. I think when you look at Silva, like, there's a charisma there. Um, Le Chiffre, he's very charismatic. Mads Mikkelsen, you just, he's magnetic to watch. Whereas, like, Safin... He's unpleasant to watch. Like, there's a gross factor to this character that's kind of rare for Bond films who like to play up their villains as a little more comic booky. This guy's really creepy. And um, I like that they had his whole Garden of Death, which was brought from the uh, You Only Live uh, Twice novel. I just wish they'd done a little more with that Garden of Death. If you've got a Death Garden, damn it, you better use that Death Garden. But uh, he's someone who I like all the little bits around him. Just. It bothers me that he's the guy that kills Bond. I'm also, I should note, um, and I didn't bring this up in the things I didn't like before because I thought it was a little too spoilery, but I felt like his plot, um, his whole genetic engineering and viruses um, was a little confusing, um, especially in the payoff as to what was going on when he had the cracked vial in his hand. I, as I said, I went with um, you know Janine and Tyler from who appeared on the show all of us had different interpretations as to what had happened at the end there. 
It took my second watch to clear that up. Actually, it was something I had noted. It 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 happens very fast, and it's not well explained, and and you have to sort of figure out. Okay, he's been infected, and then he kind of tells you at the top of the stair sequence. Um, but yeah, I suppose I I had a problem with the character. I as I said in the non spoiler section and, and carrying over to here is he has no menace. I never felt fear. Um, he isn't, and he also isn't entertaining. So, like in terms of Bond villains, they're either really scary or they're funny. You know, Alec Trevelyan is quite scary. Hmm. Jonathan Price as Elliot Carver is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I will remember both of those for those things, but I don't think I'll remember Safin. And Silva is both. He's both scary and really funny. Um, Safin, they just don't give him lines. Like I like the bit where he says, you know. You know, Mr. Bond, you and I are the same. We both kill. I just do it a little tidier. You know, like things like that. I'm like, perfect. Like, that's a good line. Give him a little more. But he's just barely used in the movie. A lot of it is actually about Blofeld, who I want to say, I think Blofeld's entrance in this movie might be the best moment in the entire film. Oh, that's not my favorite moment. Really? I mean, like, there's the action scene with Ana de Armas that's incredible. Like, that is the best action scene in the movie. This movie has really phenomenal action, we should say as well. But um, that Blofeld entrance to me was absolutely incredible. Like that was just pure cinema. That is Fukunaga just giving us a Blofeld moment that I think it may be one of my all-time favorite Blofeld moments. I'm trying to think right now of one I would rank higher. Like I thought it was absolutely incredible. I I can't argue. I'm not going to say you're entirely... Cuckoo, <laughs> but um, I, I I suppose it was a, it was a fine scene for me. I mean, it's clear that you know Carrie Fukunaga has has his fingers in the horror realm. You know, he has a screenwriting uh, credit on it. Um, you know, that first scene where you meet Safin is actually quite scary with the whole mask behind the door. It's yeah. and 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 you said it earlier. He's a visually interesting director. His his visuals are stunning. The whole stuff in in the woods looks great. The you know there's a lot of shots in this film. The stuff in Matera in Italy, the beginning in the pre-title sequence, fantastic. It looks great. Some of the best looking shots in maybe all of Bond, which is another callback to maybe on the Manchester in a way. But um, I, I I suppose I got the horror vibe from the Blofeld scene to sort of tie it back to what you were saying. So maybe that's why it worked for you. Yeah, he's someone who. I mean, he's just, he's such a visually dynamic talent and he's a very diverse filmmaker. Like he kind of bounces all over the place. He doesn't really focus on one particular genre, but he just seems incredibly good at everything he does. So I was actually listening to an interview with him where he said that he was initially like talking to the Broccoli's about potentially rebooting Bond. And um, then just because of, you know, that post Spectre period where things were kind of confusing um, at a certain point, he just ended up jumping onto this film after Danny Boyle left because Danny Boyle was the original director of this film. And um, it does make me wonder. And he said this movie was exhausting to make. Like what a beast he said to make. It was like seven days a week, no sleep, um, just exhausting to do. But it does make me wonder if he was so intrigued at rebooting Bond, if he maybe comes back. So who knows give him you know a couple years of sleep and maybe he does but he's someone who i'm so glad this movie wound up with him because he's a director who's so good at moments and bond movies that aren't they all about that 
doesn't the overriding plot line do they ever really make sense <laughs> like you look at bond films what's octopussy about i have no idea <laughs> people are still trying to figure that out 40 years later i mean you look at the uh the fight sequence up the stairs yeah it's so like jason Bourne, but in a good way it's tight it's visceral and you, you feel it and i that's one of the best scenes for me in the film i mean it's funny that my two favorite scenes are action scenes um that and the cuba one which i pointed to earlier but i want to spin us off onto something that i wasn't so much a fan of mm-hmm. and that is the clearing of the table i understand why they had to do it you know uh, killing off felix killing off specter but the way they just kind of wiped out Spectre with a this this magical virus thing, which you mentioned earlier that you weren't a big fan of, I, I kind of just sort of rolled my eye hmm. uh, Yeah. Yeah, I, I just felt it was a bit cheap. It was kind of like, hey, we spent this entire Spectre film building them up, and oh, they're all dead. Well, let's be honest. Spectre was a failure. And I don't mean the movie. I mean Spectre, the, the organization in this Craig era was a failure. Hmm. They wanted to launch Quantum. In Quantum of Solace, you had a really great introduction to that group at the opera scene there where Bond's exposing them. And then they did next to nothing with them when you get to Spectre. And then you wipe them out here. So, yeah, like when they do their reboot of Bond, I hope they don't just try to strip mine the past again. Like it just seems like if it worked the first time, just let it lie and do something original. Because Silva wasn't based on any existing character and he was incredible. So I don't need to see, you know, past elements brought forward. And Spectre just felt like something like, what do you do with them? Like, they weren't even interesting in the movie Spectre when they're exposed, like, running a bunch of computers at at Blofeld's headquarters. You're like, okay, like, I don't know. Um, honestly, I think they mostly used them here to kill them all off for the sake of making Safin look even more dangerous. It's like, look, this guy's so bad, he took down all of Spectre. I think that's really what their main function is. But I think it flops in that sense because it's this magical air virus thing. Yeah. It's not a it's not an actual kill. I mean, you get the gruesome way they die, but it's it doesn't feel like it's Safin doing it. It just it's just kind of in the ether. I would also wonder too, you and I have seen all the Bond films. Um a lot of the listeners have watched the Bond films over and over again. They understand the history of Spectre and why they're so important to a newer viewer who's just watched the Craig films mostly. What does Spectre even mean to them? Like nothing. Just a ring. Yeah. Yeah. If they remember that even. Mm. But what about you? What's something you want to bring up in the spoiler section? Um, Like, you know, you touched on it earlier, but like Lashana Lynch and Ana de Armas' characters, I thought really worked. Like they were dynamic they were interesting. They had fantastic action scenes. And they felt like fully fleshed out characters. So rare for a Bond film. Usually you get one really well-written female character and then one that's not so great. Here, they put focus on writing all of the characters. Like, that's so rare. And I don't think that's something detractors of this movie, I think, should acknowledge at least, is that they really went out of their way to write every character in an interesting way. Anna Darmus's character in a different movie. And I like that they were kind of playing initially almost like you're seeing like the, I don't know, like the spy version of like plenty of tool or something. Mm. And then that's, you know, that switch is flipped and it's like, no, this character is badass, and you're going to walk out remembering her action moments 
more than Craig's, like really phenomenal work there. And it was interesting too, I was in the interview I was listening to, he was saying that Daniel Craig was injured at the time and she shot almost all of her material with his stunt double. And then she had to come back later on because she had to leave to go shoot something else. She had to come back and do a couple days with Daniel Craig. So the fact that they pieced all that together and it delivers the way it does is just phenomenal work for all involved. It's it's seamless. I didn't even know that. And I, I didn't notice at all. I think the Cuba sequence goes down for me, maybe with the pre-tile sequence to some of the some of the best of the Craig era, at least. I maybe won't compare it to the rest, but I will remember that Cuba scene for a long time. I think it was so well done, and I think Anna de Armas knocked out of the park. I would love to see her again. I don't think we ever will, but I would love to see her again. Yeah, and it like delivered character moments. It was funny. It just really jumped out. And Lashana Lynch delivered something that I've wanted to see for a long time and I forgot about which was, I think I acknowledged when we talked about Goldeneye, and I don't remember if it was on our episode or when we did a guest appearance on Cinema Savvy, but we got to see in that film two um, double O agents working together for a little bit of time, very little. Here, we get to see it full on, and that's something that we've never gotten, and Lashana Lynch plays this character in an interesting way where a different film would have really underwritten that character or, or you know, Bond would have had to rescue her at some point or something. It's like in the world of the Craigverse, double O's are deadly. Mm -hmm. Like they are kind of dangerous customers. And Bond is not the most likable guy in much of this franchise. And I like that her character had an incredibly tough edge too. She has some good sly jokes in there, some good lines. But like you see, she is a highly focused killer. So when you see the two of them going together, it really works. And we get to see two top, you know, double O agents working together. And it's really fantastic. Uh, I, I will ask the question on behalf of the outraged internet that might still be listening at this point. Do you care that she was 007? No, because it makes sense that like if he is retired, they would keep using those numbers. We've seen um, 00s uh, used over again over the course of the franchise. I'm pretty sure we've seen like a 008 twice or something like that. And we've had a, a female 00 before. That's Yeah. You know, I mean, it's in the background, but she's there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I will answer my own question. I also had no problem with it. I, there's a lot of people writing stupid articles out there about how, you know, Bond needs to be a woman now and Bond needs to never come back. All this sort of nonsense journalism that can just you know, go away if you ask me. But I, I had zero problem with what they did with the Lashana Lynch character to the point that if they said to me, we're going to do an Amazon series based on their agreement they got with Amazon with Lashana Lynch as 007 post the death of James Bond, sign me up. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, 007 only means something to the audience, not the characters. Mm -hmm. And that was something that really sucked with Spectre, which is like the reveal of the Blofeld name is being treated in a way where it's talking to the audience, not the characters. It doesn't make sense why the characters would be like, oh, Blofeld. It only means something to the audience, which is something that J.J. Abrams did in the second Star Trek movie he did, where it's like he reveals Khan and the characters like, okay, like, Sure. And I like that in this movie, they're just acknowledging like, well, it's another number. Like, it doesn't mean anything to us. It only means something to the audience. I don't like it when the filmmakers talk to the audience. I, and I didn't really understand why she asked for him to be redesignated as 007 later in the film. It, it genuinely didn't matter. It was, I suppose it was meant to put smiles on some people's faces. 
I would say it's a bit of an appeasement thing for the audience, and it's a sign of respect for that character towards him, because they're pretty icy towards each other throughout, and it sort of helps you get more on board with their team dynamic at the end. Cam, it's so woke. Ugh. <laughs> oh, brother. Okay, um, I'm conscious of the length of a declassified episode, so I'm going to try and wrap us up now, Cam. Spoilers involved, what are your final thoughts on No Time to Die post your first viewing? I think I'm just going to kind of leave it with what I've said so far and that my mind is still kind of jelly and I'm processing the movie. So like, I feel like my take is going to be different down the road, but I walked out happy and it, I walked out excited to watch it again, which doesn't happen with every one of these eagerly anticipated blockbusters that I'm really excited to go see it again and process it because now that I know where it's going, I can actually relax a little, uh, mm. which with Bond films, that's always a little stressful. Um, I just want to note one thing, though. I thought the Billie Eilish song worked a lot better just seeing it on the theater screen with the credits and everything like that mm -hmm. than it did just listening to it. So, you know, that's always a plus. The credit sequence and the pre-title sequence altogether, I think, is, is some really cracking stuff. Well, that the little chase sequence through Matera it made me want to go there, which is kind of what the original idea of some of the travelogue stuff was. Mm -hmm. to make you want to go visit these places and i probably will try and get there now so it was successful <laughs> nice. um for me i again i probably just harken back to what i said earlier it's it's a good film i enjoyed it i mean you know you look at i think bond was it was one of daniel craig's better performances i think the guest casts the the, the side characters lashawn lynch anna diarmas were fantastic and very memorable and you know I, we haven't mentioned, but the score, I think, is one of the better scores we've had in, in quite some time. I've been fighting for, like, David Arnold to come back because I just felt so underwhelmed by the Bond scores as of late that I mm -hmm. really was like, that guy got it. Why are we not using him? Hans Zimmer can have the job as long as he wants, though, after this one. Yeah, and, and working in We Have All the Time in the World and some of the On Your Majesty stuff was, was just great. I, I think maybe they played the hand too much with it, but... It was still fun to, to relive it. I, I'm a fan of the film. I will probably try and catch it a third time in the cinemas. I think it's where it should be seen. I'm glad it wasn't released on home release. I'm glad we waited. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. We have finally seen No Time to Die, and we've officially put Daniel Craig to bed. Unfortunately, he's been a great Bond in many ways, in some interesting ways, maybe not. And we're looking forward to actually tackling his, his five-film journey possibly starting next year, so stay tuned for that. Um, but Cam, what are we doing next week? We are tackling 1973's The Day of the Jackal. I've seen some debate online about whether this is a spy film, and we do discuss that in the episode. I think it's a very interesting espionage film. A lot to talk about, some Bond connections. I think it's going to be a really fun episode. Absolutely, and we have Jeff over from spyright.com to you know lend some credibility, because... Really, we have none by this point. Clearly. Mm. Well, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The Day of the Jackal and join us next week. You can, of course, follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners. You just killed James Bond. <laughs> <laughs>